Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. The top stories from Global's newsroom, this is Alex Mearns. It's understood a fresh allegation of historical sex assault has been made against black cab rapist John Warboys, just weeks after he was recommended for release by the parole board. The 60-year-old has not been arrested. In Five politics, more Teresa minutes. You've slept long enough. If you don't get up now, you're not going to have enough time to get ready for the show. For the NHS. I'm going, I promise. The, the second you walk away will be the moment I get out of bed. Don't let that bed put you under its spell. Besides, you're not going to want to miss this. It was written by a country music legend. <gasps> All you had to say was Dolly Parton and I would have sprung out of bed. Give me 10 minutes and I'll be ready. Promise. Hundreds of jobs are at risk as two major firms. Wow. If I hadn't known any better, I would have said you took two hours to get ready. Shall we go, beautiful? Lead the way, partner. Wants to cut costs. Finally, in sports, former Manchester United player Phil Neville's been appointed England women's head coach. He signed a contract until the end of the 2021. Hi everyone and welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host Hope Bird and with me is my co-host Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the hilarious show 9 to 5. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. We tumbled out of bed and we stumbled to the kitchen. We poured ourselves a cup of ambition, and we've come to you today to discuss the short-lived but hilarious show, 9 to 5, The Musical. This divine comedy unites the talents of three powerful actresses leading the charge, backed by an amazing cast. But before we talk about that, let's start with the top sheet information of the show. The show was based on a 1980 film of the same name from 20th Century Fox, which starred Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, and Jane Fonda. The musical was developed through several different workshops and would eventually make its out-of-town trial in Los Angeles, where it received several nominations for the L.A. Ovation Awards. After that, it would make its move to Broadway. But before we get to that, let's get to our design team. The set was by Scott Pask, costumes by William Ivy Long, lights by Kenneth Posner and Jules Fisher, imaging by Peter Negrini and Peggy Eisenhower, sound design by John Shivers, hair by Paul Huntley, and makeup by Angelina Avalon. Music and lyrics by Dolly Parton, mm-hmm. book by Patricia, Patricia Resnick, directed by Joe Mantello, and choreography by Andy Blinkenbuehler. The show finally arrived on Broadway at the Marquee Theater on April 30th, 2009, and would play there for 149 performances, closing on September 6th, 2009. 
The show would be nominated that year for four Tony Awards as well. So let's punch in the clock and dive into the story itself. As the clock rings and the workers wake up, Violet, Dora Lee, and Judy prepare for work. The workers begin on another mundane and hellish day at work under Franklin Hart Jr., president of Consolidated Industries. Judy and Violet meet for the first time, and Judy reveals she does not have any work experience. But Violet states she will be proud to train her and gives her a few tips and pointers for surviving office life. Franklin Hart Jr. is a domineering and equally lecherous man who lusts after his secretary, Dora Lee, and has no shame in making those feelings known, which discomforts Dora Lee. Judy is having major issues on her first day, such as being unable to work a Xerox machine and feels there is something more inhibiting her. All three women in separate settings share mutual feelings, but they all... But they all feel they can overcome it and make it all work out in the end. A new day rises upon the begrudged workers of Consolidated, and life resumes as normal. Around the lunch hour, Dora Lee and Judy speak for the first time, as Dora Lee asks Judy to go to lunch with her. But Judy subtly refuses, and Dora Lee doesn't know why. She then reflects on her whole life, about just being a pretty face and nothing much more. Violet is passed over for yet another promotion, which angers her since it is somebody that she personally trained. After a heated confrontation in Hart's office, Dora Lee finds out about Hart's rumor about their supposed affair, which infuriates her to the point of threatening him. All three women, who are now seemingly united in their contempt for Hart, go back to Violet's house and light up a joint. (laughs) Suddenly... Each woman, each woman lapses into a murderous fantasy involving Mr. Hart. Judy as an unforgiving femme fatale, Dora Lee as a crack rodeo star, and Violet as a deranged Snow White. All of these sadistic fantasies soon uh, culminate into a celebration of Hart's death, which is quickly nixed after Hart discover, is discovered alive. The next day at the office, Violet unwittingly acts out her fantasy and believes she put rat poison into Hart's coffee. They all go to the hospital in a panic, but learn he was never there. Roz overhears the ladies in the bathroom and tells Hart, who has concocted a plan to scare them by pretending he was actually poisoned and threatens them with the police. After Hart leaves, Roz sings a song confessing his, her obsessive love and fantasies for him. Hart confronts Dora Lee and the information, and Dora Lee, acting on a fight-or-flight instinct, rips the phone out of the wall and ties up Hart with the wires, which he seems to get a quasi-sexual pleasure from. These, the women are seemingly puzzled, as to what to do with Hart, but Judy and Violet create a plan in which they will imprison Hart in his own house. As they are carrying out their plan, they sing to Hart their issues with him, 
and the problems in their own lives, but will begin to take the changes in their lives and have the confidence to succeed. The women, now empowered, have restrained Hart to a mechanical harness above his bed. End of Act 1. After the Entra Act, in Hart's office, the three women are pondering how they can keep the office in the dark about Hart's disappearance when Dora Lee's skill of being able to forge Hart's signature comes into play. Judy and Dora Lee both point out to Violet that she is, in a sense, the new operating office, uh, officer of the company. Violet then lapses in a fantasy and sings a song about how she is now a hard hitter like the rest of the male employees who seem to rank above the women. Roz begins to get nosy and wonders where Hart actually is, which creates a new obstacle for the ladies to rid. Judy formulates the idea to send Roz to a one-month language seminar to learn French, which isn't necessary and is only a way to get rid of her. Roz receives the memo from Violet and is heartbroken because she believes that Hart doesn't like her now and that, uh, and that the time she isn't at work is lonely and boring. As Hart is still strung up in his bedroom, he passes time by watching countless hours of soap operas. Dora Lee enters to give him a meal and Hart lashes out at her saying that he still has control and will use it when he is free. Dora Lee brushes him off and leaves the room. Hart begins to recount how most of the men in history had downfalls by women and that he is no different, which angers him. Back at the office, the new changes the women have made under Hart's name have added to the ease of workers' lives and changed their outlook on work. Joe, who has shown admiration towards Violet through the show, asking her out many times, confronts her and asks why she rebuffs him. She claims she was a one-man woman and that her husband's death three years before has prevented her from dating again. Joe tells her that it is time to move on and possibly give someone new a chance. Violet accepts as they walk out of the scene holding hands. Later on that evening, Judy's ex-husband, Dick, shows up at Hart's house and asks her to take him back since his secretary girlfriend dumped him. She rebuffs him and states she is a changed woman who will not crawl back to someone who broke her heart, showing strength as she orders him to leave. The next day, Hart storms into the office with Judy hostage, which shocks the women who have collected evidence about Hart's creative accounting and embezzling practices to use against him. The women, seemingly defeated, prepare to submit to Hart's wishes when they learn that the CEO of Consolidated, Mr. Tinsworthy, is paying a visit. The three women and Hart meet Mr. Tinsworthy, who, after noting the changes in, the, in office life, gives the credit to Hart. Violet and the others step up and say that they made the changes, but are shot down. However, in a comedic twist, Tinsworthy sends Hart to manage the South American branch in Bolivia. Violet is then promoted to Hart's position as president of the company, and a celebration ensues while Roz is devastated over the loss of her obsession. The characters deliver epilogues about what happened after the events of the story. Hart was captured by natives in the jungles of Bolivia and was never seen or heard, of or heard from again. Roz found a new love, Hart's wife. Violet and Joe have been together for the past 30 years and are very happy together. Dora Lee went to Nashville and became a successful country and western singer. Judy stayed single and became a regular 
guest on The View after writing the best-selling book, Life Without Dick. The The end. end. So let's now talk about what we like, what we don't, everything. So one thing that I love from the plot that we did not put in the synopsis because I wanted the opportunity to talk about it. Was the garage door. Yes, exactly. No, No, it was the phrase that was brought over from the movie. The sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. Yes, we refuse to be controlled by a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. Can I just say what I love about that? And I'm going to get political one moment. Is for the last four years and many, many protests against a certain mango... um, that sign has been everywhere, and all I can think of is this show. And I'm like, oh, well, there's what? a reason. There's a reason why because Jane Fonda said it. Um, sorry, there's an article from Dateline.com in 2017 um, where that's exactly what she called him. Yes, that's what all of them, like Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton, Parton, and, and Jane Lu- Fonda, yeah. all talked about. How this show, and they alluded to the fact that the character is so much like a certain ex-president, Fanta can of evil. Exactly. Yeah, and well, what amazes me is that that term has been brought. You know, we're going to talk about this later, but it's been brought forty years later. But that is like the catchphrase, and they use it in a lot of the marketing: sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical, bigot. Describe the angry white man right now. But no, I and and that actually leads me to the first point that I wanted to make about the plot. What I love is that this entire show raises up and it empowers women. It's all about empowering women. Well, and the thing that I love the most about it is it's a it's a realistic depiction of women, even though there are some. There's better situations. I mean, there's still like well, and there's still like stereotyping of different kinds of women, but it's done in an empowering way, and I just think that that just goes to show that women do a really good job of writing their own stories. Yes, and I mean, I will say uh, this show is set at a different time. It is not up to date. The show is not set in the here and now. It's set in the 80s. Yeah, but I like what you said because Dolly Parton is basically the author of this. And I don't think you'd get the same tone or the same there's little there's little touches here and there that definitely make it from a woman's perspective and you wouldn't get that if a man wrote it. You needed that mm-hmm. touch from a woman um, to really put the spin on it. The, the way a, the certain way a woman r- would react or certain little things that they would say, you have to have that, that experience or that knowledge. And that comes with being a woman and being a woman in the workplace. I think Dolly, Dolly Parton is a perfect person who look at the career and the life she's had, especially at, that, uh, at the point in history that she's had it being this beautiful and, dare I say, buxom woman who's had to deal with all that kind of stuff. And she doesn't want to talk about her looks and all that or the no, fact that she's a woman. It, what she wants to talk about is, I'm talented, I'm smart, 
and look at all the good works I can do. Well, and if you if you know much about Dolly Parton, you know that the character of Dolly Parton is a image that she has chosen to portray to get the attention that she wants, to get the platform that she needs to spread what she wants to say. Yeah. And so, like, this whole, you know, I mean, yeah, listen, we all love the jokes, you know, and we all love the, the big old titties and, you know, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's empowering because she's chosen to become that person. And she makes and, that point. Yes. I'm more than this, but I chose this. I don't need to change who I am. Because someone's making me feel bad, the person making me feel bad needs to change. I like who I am. I don't need to change to make them feel better. They need to change to make me feel better. Exactly. And that's been Dolly Parton's message. Her that's been her personal message her whole life. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't get that from a man writing that 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 story. Exactly. And that's just I think that that really just goes to show the brilliance of Dolly Parton, especially because there are a lot of people who listen to her accent and think that she's, she's dumb. An idiot, yeah. Yeah. Listen, this is a woman who has given millions of books out to encourage people to read. She's done more good in the state of Tennessee and around the world. Um, yeah, she's got some silly things like Dolly World and all that, but she's also done these incredible things to educate and to help ease poverty and raise awareness and, and, and also raise women I, up and one thing i really want to make a note of that dolly parton has done to help the world to create a better world recently if you have gotten a covid vaccine recently and i believe particularly the moderna dolly parton helped fund the research of that i mean if that's not a testament to how good of a human she is you know what i mean yeah, a lot of people where she's from may not believe in all of this. And she's someone using her platform to stand up and be like, this is real. This is happening. And I don't want to argue with you. I just want to do the right thing and be a good human. Dolly Parton is a national treasure up there with Betty White and, um, you know, B. Arthur and that. They're just good people. We need more good people. And, and they're also people who refuse to change who they are. To yeah. conform to what society expects. She's of a them. sweet Southern lady, and she's like, I'm not. I, I, I'm going to be famous and rich and and super talented and, and known the world over, but I'm still just going to be the sweet little girl from Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's amazing. I also love that the humor. It's such a Dolly Parton humor too. Yes. Um, and listen, friends. Go look up Dolly Parton in any interview she gives. Not only does she have this sweet, like, almost grandma-like humor, she is a dirty bird (laughs) in the best way ever. Dolly Parton makes Jimmy Fallon blush so much, and I love it. I want to go get drinks with Dolly and just have her tell me jokes and tell me stories. But she embodies that in her show. The humor and the wit in this show is spot yes, on. Yes, there is so much wit in this show that it's like, un, like, I mean, it's as witty as like any Sondheim lyric. Well, and I, I love mean, it. I mean, it's not slapstick. No. But it's, it's real world. It's it, There's office humor and then there's just good humor. I mean, you don't have to force anything. One of my favorite things is if you want to have... If you want to talk gossip in the, about The Office, check under the bathroom stalls for feet first. That's a good line. And anybody who's ever had an office job, absolutely. Like, you got to be careful who you talk. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, that's where Roz stands on the... Yeah, the she gets smart and she's like, aha. You know, uh, but then at the same time, one of the best turns, one of the best quirks is when they all get together and they smoke a joint. Right. They don't need to push the absurdity... Or the jokes there, it just needs to be organic and natural. 
because this is an awkward, hilarious situation, and that's what I appreciate. There was, you could have gone really bad if you had just forced all these puns or these awkward jokes, and mm-hmm. there was like, just write the script and let the actors take it away, and let the joke be of the moment, not the situation. Right, because who hasn't been with a group of coworkers and just complained about everything and wanted to just like get it all out and say the meanest, rudest stuff, but then you know that you're not going to actually do it. Yeah, and... Yeah, it's just, it's fun. And speaking of fun and funny, the you, you, you've you got three dynamic leading ladies, and they all bring something different to the table. But in the world of comedy, what makes comedy work? You have to have three eccentrics, but then you have to have a straight character. And everyone assumes that the, the straight character is Violet. No. The straight character in this show is... Roz. Which is funny. You should say straight. <laughs> Stop it. No, Roz is the deadpan straight character that all the jokes and insults bounce off of, and that's why it works. Roz is the note, has to be in everyone's business, and the busybody, give an inch, she takes a mile kind of person, you know? Well, the, the, the modern day Karen of the office, if you will. I mean, listen, honestly, I've been trying to think about, like, what is the biggest power ballad in this show? Heart to heart. Well, and that's the thing is it's hard to pick, but God, heart to heart well, is up there so, because it's so, like, it's honest and real. I mean, all of the all of the ballads are honest and real. Well, here's the thing. Heart to heart, to me, is a humorous ballad because of the setting. But you can't play and the, it humorous. And, and, and the way that it's sung and the style and the lyrics okay they're in the bathroom and i love that it's like this spiritual hymn you know mm-hmm. and she is this this white lady and she's got this salt and pepper hair that's cut precisely at the at the chin line like it, she is just so prim and proper and she goes and everything and she's like having this like sexual experience in there and my favorite part is they're they're just like riffing hard to hard and everyone's freaking out and then she comes out from the group and goes let me tell you something else let me tell you something else you know like she's burying a testimony and that's her ballad but it's kind of humorous you balance that with in my opinion the best ballad which is um get out and stay out which is what judy sings that's the heartfelt ballad and that's the one that makes you just want to like just go out at everything um, but Roz, the thing that makes just Roz work is you have to be, and like you said, you can't play up her part as funny. You have to play it as straight and deadpan and serious as possible. And the more you do that, the funnier it is. It is, and a lot of people think you have to have, you know, the, um, oh, what was her name? Funny girls based on her. Who am I thinking of? Fanny Bryce. Fanny Bryce, you know, the, the weird face and the pratfall and everything like that. You don't need any of that. To be funny. You can be the other person on the other end that accentuates that. And it takes both to be funny. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and the other thing I just wanted to say as well is there's a lot of really good songs in the show that um, push the plot. Yes. Um, and one of the songs that I actually, I really love that, um, honestly... It, it feels out of place except for in context. Like if you listen to Backwards Barbie or Backwards, Backwards Barbie, I absolutely love the song. But every time I hear it, can I tell you what it makes me think of? Cowgirls the Musical. Okay. By uh, Betty uh, Mary Murphy and uh, Betsy Howie. Um, 
there's a song called, oh my gosh, I gotta remember the name of it. Hold on, it'll come to me. But it's sung by, um, like, the Trailer Trash. Uh, oh, Don't Call Me Trailer Trash by Mickey and Moe. Mm -hmm. uh, but every time I hear it, I think of it, and I'm like, I just wonder if, you know, because, like, how do I put this? In the 1980s is when 9 to 5 came out, and there was this character of Dora Lee, played by Dolly Parton. Mm -hmm. And then in the 90s, you had Cowgirls the Musical come out. Um, and I have to think that it was influenced by the movie, but then part of me just likes to have this like canon of Dolly Parton having seen Cowgirls the Musical, and using that to also Maybe. help influence. You know, the she musical. also recorded that song on that an was, album. Oh, I know yeah. that. It was after she, yeah, after the musical <clears throat> came out. Yeah. But like, I don't know. I just really also wanted an opportunity to talk about Cowgirls the Musical yeah, because did. I. It's an underrated show, and everyone needs to know about it. I want to bounce back before we go further with music and that, because music and choreography go together. I want to talk about the lighting real fast. Um, <clears throat> there was really cool lighting effects for the different death sequences. And what I mean by that is, so for Judy's death sequence, there was a lot of, like, fatale, pointed like... lights, like very focused, hyper-focused white lights to be like lasers. Mm -hmm. Then for Doralee's, it seemed like it was more, like, grainy because it was a western uh -huh. so it had that like old 1800s western look to it and then for uh violets that snow white weird uh -huh. thing it was very bright and cartoony obviously oh yeah well because that's where the projections came in with they called them um what did they call them in this show they didn't call them projections they called them uh imaging or something yeah, like that. yeah imaging but that's exactly what they were is projections yeah, and they were actual like cartoon little birds up on that the up on the proscenium and that but yeah but i mean the the actual lighting to help create those different stories all through one you know we didn't just light the characters to see the people but we created an entire different world one after the other and there wasn't a lot of set pieces involved either that to me was great. And then, yeah, like you said, the projections. I loved that the projections and the imaging wasn't just used in that. I mean, the opening number we had, I'm thinking like the subway scene. They all get in the subway. Mm -hmm. And then you see the lights close the door and then the lights are hyper-focused so we can see everyone riding the subway. They're just standing there and they're bobbing, but the lights are going by and the projections are going by and you clearly see they're on the subway. There's nothing moving on the stage. There is no subway set piece. I they're really giving that image. I really wish you guys could see that Andrew is literally trying I'm to riding like, the subway right he's now. trying to recreate it right now. Um, or at the end of the opening number, they have all these arrows and things going everywhere and clocks everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to see what this looks like, look up the 2009 opening number from the Tony Awards when 9 to 5 performed. They have that. And it, at the Tony Awards, which is really, really cool. Um, and then, of course, the opening number with the different alarm clocks, you see them go off and different people smack around the stage, but it's in the screen. Yeah. You know, so this, I know this sounds weird because we're in 2021, but this was back in 2009. Uh -huh. This was really unique and cool. This is the start of projections and everything oh, yeah. being and incorporated sorry. into the show. We hadn't really seen a lot of this be that all-consuming. So this was really a great marriage. And this is where a lot more sets and that became more projections and imaging. Right. Well, and then speaking of sets, I mean, as soon as you said kind of how progressive it was, all of a sudden I got that image in my mind of all the phones that make up the curtain. 
like all the different foam yes. cords and like the 80s colors and they were like the yes. cords and like they were sitting at different lengths and oh it was just such yep. an amazing image and you're like what am I about to see and then you know you get and, in you're like oh office humor phones I yes see. and then moving on just real quick to, to set we mentioned a lot of the set the subway I already said we moved on to set oh well hey here I am we talked about the subway. We've talked about the bathroom with Roz, the pink. And I love that the bathroom, by the way, was pink. I feel like every time anything in entertainment displays a woman's bathroom, it's always pink. It's pink. always plush. And and there's always a couch. I don't believe that that's a real thing. I don't think every woman's bathroom has a couch. There wasn't a couch. Yes, there was. I don't remember There was a totally a couch. And I laughed about that because I was like... Why does every women's bathroom have to have a couch? Well, I mean, if you think about it, in the 80s, we were still progressing from the 60s in the workplace. And before 60s, when women were actually entering in the workforce, women's restrooms, especially in office buildings, were considered lounges. I get that, but just as a general comment, like watch any Hallmark movie or something like that. Anytime they're in a women's bathroom, I feel like, unless it's like some gritty drama on CBS or something... There's a freaking couch in the women's bathroom. And I'm like, really? I don't believe there's that many. To, if I no, go the couch and, is what makes it a lounge instead of a bathroom. I understand. So I don't <laughs> think there's that many lounges out there anymore. Sorry. Listen, all I have to say is every time I see a pink tile bathroom, I always think the stalls are going to be very short. And that's where I'm going to die. So, all right. you know, it's kind of a little morbid that way. I love the three different rooms in the opening number. Um... You know, you had Dora Lee on stage left. You had Judy on stage right. You had Violet in the center. I love that. Um, and I mentioned it when we first started talking about this, which was the garage door thing that you they used to string up. Um, heart. Heart. And the reason why that was significant and funny is Violet, after when they, you know, they go home and she didn't get the promotion, she's working to fix her garage door. And, you know, she finally fixes it. So when they take them heart back to his place and they're trying to figure out how to string them up everybody kind of uses their different skills to Dora Lee being Dora a cowgirl tying her up. up Judy being able to silence him um, or something or another and then Violet knowing how to hoist him up using a garage door uh, mm-hmm. and I thought that was really awesome because you know just to display we saw the garage door and everything but I never actually saw how they hoisted him up it was really good masking. Um, so that was fun. That was a lot of fun to see. Now we can move on to the music and choreography, which we've been just going on and on about. Who cares about our organization? To hell with it. Welcome to 2021. We're Broadway's back and we, to hell with it. Um, look, we've been saying it a lot, and I think you caught the gist. It's Dolly Parton, and this music really does get stuck in your head. Well, and I think that a lot of people tend to forget that Dolly Parton wrote the entire score. Oh, that's not what I was going to say. Dolly Parton wrote the um, greatest love ballad that anyone ever always knows, but a lot of people don't remember that she wrote it because Whitney Houston sang it. I Will Always Love You. Yes, Dolly Parton wrote that. Oh, I, I think most people know that. I think that they just recognize the cover by Whitney Houston because of the bodyguard. Well, yes, but what I'm saying is, like, that's... Here's this, like, heart-wrenching ballad that everyone knows. Um, and so why wouldn't her musical have ballad after ballad, especially when she has three strong women cast as the Well, and what I, what I think is interesting, and no, I'm not going to say that now. I'm going to save this for later. 
I'm going to save this for later. Nope. Remember that for later. Dolly Parton wrote just a really memorable score. I think it's highly unappreciated. There are a couple of songs, in my opinion, that I'm like, meh. I think Let Love Grow meh. is a little bit, falls a little flat for me. It's a little islands in the sky. Well, no, it just, <laughs> it, 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 it's a low, it's way too low of a point in the show. It, it slows a little bit too much for me. Um, but it's all on its own. It's it's a really pretty song. It yeah. is. And that's the thing is these songs not only can stand on their own, but even in the show they're decent. Um, but a lot of these songs is just they stick in your head, you know. Um, shine. Oh, shine like the sun. Mm-hmm. That's such a when I lost my first job, I that song was just on constant repeat, and I was like, I can do this. I can do this. I'm gonna be okay. Um, that song was incredible. It still is incredible. Um, the, oh, what am I thinking of? You gotta know what to do. Oh. You gotta do it in a hurry. Gotta hustle, gotta bustle, gotta scoot you, gotta that's scurry. That's the second song in the show. Uh, on time. Around here. Around here, that's right. It's such, I mean, look, I just sang a bunch of it. It's, I, I haven't seen the show in 13 years. I can still sing the freaking music. That's how right. good and it I is. And I can hear Alice and Janney's voice from the recording in my head because it just, Gotta know what to do. Gotta do it in a hurry. And I can just hear her voice. Yep. Um, and in regards to the, the choreography, and any blank and beal. Now listen, if you're a big theater goer, you already know where we're going with this. You already know who this is. If you're not a big theater goer and you're just like, I appreciate it, let's fill you in. You know Andy Blank and Bueller primarily from Alexander Hamilton. So it's no surprise that he did this show and that this choreography is very mechanical. It looks like a machine. Mm-hmm. I love the opening number, especially because it ends and everyone's just doing, like they're part of assembly, uh, an assembly line and they're punching in and that's part of the choreography and everything. He's the one that got the subway thing in there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the the uh, Around here, that office number was absolutely brilliant, you know. Even background movements and scenes, it was choreographed. If you were on the stage, it was a purpose, and your movements had a purpose. That's what I love about Andy Blankenbuehler's choreography. Movement doesn't just happen. Everything has to happen for a purpose. It has to heighten and enhance the storytelling, you know? Um, And I really appreciate that, because I've seen a lot of shows where it's just like, and freestyle, two, three, four, and punch, six, seven, eight, and twirl, and twirl, and freestyle, you know? Or people will just be like, and this is where you do business in the background just so we can have people there. And I'm like, no, no, no. That doesn't work because that'll change every night. He made sure that if you're going to be standing there and you hear this line, you have to react this way. And this movement has to happen because it creates this move. It's so brilliant. Well, that and, of course, we have the brilliance of Joe Mantello. Oh, Joe Mantello is such a brilliant director. I don't think I've ever seen something Joe Mantello has directed that I didn't like. And right. he's a great actor, too, but that's for another episode. But um, just a breeze, a couple of things that Joe's done. Uh, he's also done Wicked. Wicked. Um, he was doing The Glass Menagerie before it closed with uh, Sally mm-hmm. Field. Uh, Other Desert Cities. Oh, and that was so good. So he's, um, he's got quite the, uh, quite the resume. He does a lot of good. Uh this show, you know, I, I think overall the choreography just really hit at home. Marry that with the music. It was brilliant. 
The show has several notable actors, including Allison Janney, uh, Stephanie J. Block, Megan Hilty, Mark Kudich, Kathy Fitzgerald, and Andy Curl. I just want to stop here for a minute. <laughs> we got to stop here. Because we, we went through all of that, and we didn't mention hardly anything about these people. Allison Janney. Whew. Allison Janney. Can I tell you how much I love Allison Janney? Look, I know you're my wife, but Allison Janney. I mean, listen, I've never seen Allison Janney in something I haven't liked. She is always, she's a chameleon to whatever role she's in. Allison Janney can do no wrong. <laughs> I mean, neither can... Uh, Stephanie J. Block? Well, yes, but I was thinking of, what's her name? Uh, Meryl Streep, but Allison Janney. So, Allison <laughs> Janney, I'd never heard her sing. All I knew Allison Janney is um, West Wing. Mm-hmm. Oh, so good. So good. And all of a sudden, here she comes, singing, dancing, everything. And I was like, oh. And Allison Janney, six feet tall. Mm-hmm. And in, and in heels with these other two actresses. And it's like, hmm, is this going to work? No, it totally worked. It was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Then you couple that with Megan Hilty playing Dora Lee. Mm-hmm. And Allison Janney played Violet, by the way, for all of you. Megan Hilty playing Dora Lee. Absolutely wonderful, stunning voice, perfect. I mean, and that had to be intimidating playing the 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 um, like the Dolly, Dolly Parton, Parton character, character while the person Dolly Parton's there, you know. Um, but she just embodied it, and she was so perfect. And then Stephanie J. Block, who for me, who to me, was a little unknown. Now I'm sure she was well established at this point, but to me, naive little, you know, both of us, a little naive, getting our feet wet here in Broadway. We really didn't know much about her. Now, it turns out I had seen her before as Elphaba. Mm-hmm. Didn't realize that, but hey, what do you know? Um, but little did I know, Stephanie J. Block not only is amazing, she's a powerhouse. She's going to continue to just be this icon. I've never, <laughs> I've never heard, seen anything. Stephanie J. Block again does no wrong. No, I love she, her in um, anything, I love, goes, anything goes, falsettos. Mystery of Edwin Drood, um, the Cher, Cher show. show. I was going to say the Cher show. And she is such a genuine human. Uh, can we All- talk about her Tony or her Tony uh, her Tony winning speech for Cher in our wedding vows? <laughs> in our wedding, so we got married in COVID times, but in our wedding vows, I included the line from Stephanie J. Block because my wonderful wife here. Y'all are hearing this first. You'll be winning the first Tony Award for makeup and they wig design. A, they don't have a Tony Award. They're going to make one. But anyway, my wife is incredible, and she's going to be um, very successful. But I said to her in the vows that we wrote, I said, and just so you know that if you leave, I'm coming with you. Or if you ever leave, I'm coming with you, which is what Stephanie J. Block said to her husband when she won the Tony Award. <coughs> she is. The three of these women are the sweetest women in the world. They are the kindest women in the world. They are the funniest women in the world. They have no ego. They are grateful. They appreciate everyone around them. They do not take themselves so seriously. Which I absolutely love because that falls in line to my own personal philosophy, which is you should take your work seriously, but never yourself. Yeah. They they do a bang up job but they also are like we're here again uh, one of the favorite lines i've heard in the show we're here to play that's why they call it a play we're mm-hmm. here to play 
Partner that with Kathy Fitzgerald, who played Roz, another really sweet and funny person. When we met her, I remember her saying, was I in the show? Was I, was I any good? You know, <laughs> she's hilarious. And, she, and I'm just like, backstage must be just, wow. Then you have Andy Carl, and I think Andy Carl played um, Joe. Joe, if I remember right. And again, another guy that I, he might have had an established career at this time, really successful, but I didn't know. I would know him later to be widely successful when he would rise up as Rocky and in On the 20th Century and Pretty Woman. And I think he was in Wicked, if memory serves me right. I have to double check that. Don't quote me. Um, but you know, and what I love about Andy Carl is he can play these macho men and these dramatic roles, but then he can also be like, I, again, I don't take myself so seriously um, that, I, you know. Uh, oh, he was in Groundhog Day, too. That's what I'm thinking of. That's uh, the one. Yeah, Groundhog. Let's see. Yeah, he was. He played F- Fiero and Wicked. Ah, see? But he did that after 9 to 5, actually. Yeah, well, but still. Yeah, so, his, uh, his just... For the fun of it, his uh, Broadway debut, or at least for a leading role, was Saturday Night Fever as Joey. I know someone in that production. Yeah. I know. Oh, yeah, and he was also in Legally Blonde. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, these guys are fantastic because, like I said, they don't take themselves seriously. They're so kind. That backstage must have been amazing. And you really saw that on stage, that there was a genuine care for each other. There was a great humor. And that's what I love about shows, when everyone loves and cares about each other. It's not, I'm coming for you or anything like that. When it's family, it really exudes. It's that X factor that exudes from the cast. Mm -hmm. And there's very few shows that have that little extra X factor. Let's now talk about the impact of the show and what it's had on the theater and its history. Uh, first of all, theatrical impact. This is Dolly Parton's debut on Broadway overall, mainly as a composer and lyricist. Hopefully we'll see more from her, whether she's rewriting, or I'd love to see her grace the boards here. Right. I'd, I'd go see a show with Dolly Parton. As oh, in a heartbeat. Dolly Parton is Elphaba. Come on now. <laughs> no, she'd be Galinda. Who are you kidding? I'd see that, you know. Uh, I think this is, uh, the other thing is, this is another fun show that brought audiences to the theater with a familiar title and story. And I know I always say that, but people came out to see 9 to 5. You know, there was a lot of people that grew up at the movie, and now they wanted to see what the musical was about. And it wasn't so new that they left going, oh, that's a different interpretation. It was familiar. It was... It was just embellished from the movie. Yeah. In a different way. Yeah. Took out, it was more empowering. Yes. Which leads me next to the societal impact. This was a show that was all about female empowerment. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there needs to be more theater or more shows about that. Um, well, strong women, in, uh, empowered women empower women. women. Uh, and so I think that that's why this show is so important. It had strong female role models, strong female characters. 
Um, realistic, strong female characters. Yep. And it showed what healthy relationships can and should be. Right, because you have Dora Lee and her husband that's a strong, healthy relationship. And you have... Violet and, and Joe. Joe. And then you also, on the other what? end, can see how horrible a relationship can be and how setting boundaries for yourself is important, like with Judy and Dick. Well, and I would say that's a strong relationship and that Judy finally finds her voice and says no because her husband's been cheating on her and treating her horribly and Judy wants to be with him still at first. Mm-hmm. Then she realizes, no, he treats me horribly. Right. And she finds herself and stands up for herself and decides she's going to love herself. And right. that's important. you got to right. love you. If you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love anybody else? Can I get an amen? Okay. Thank you, RuPaul. <laughs> There's one more thing I want to mention that I was going to mention before, and this is important. This show not only was led by women, but it was written by a woman and there's not a lot of musicals on Broadway that both music and lyrics are by a woman especially at this time and as I'm sitting here and thinking about that I can think of like Jeannie Tesori who's written um, I think she wrote Carolina Change I know she wrote Shrek Fun Home there's a new show at Atlantic Theater Company that she's got I'm thinking of Anas Mitchell, I'm saying her name wrong, but did it Hades Town? Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of women composer lyricists out there. There are, they're just not. Well, lo- they're being produced. They're yeah. being produced on a national but stage this, like Broadway. And and if we go back 13 years, I bet it's even less. Oh yeah, well, and that's where it's it's always been harder for women to break into what is seen as traditional men's positions right so here we have a show written by a woman performed by women mm-hmm. i think that's really important i think that's a theatrical impact i think that's a societal impact um and i think that's worthy to be mentioned i think there needs to be more of that i think as broadway reopens and we do take a look at ourselves not only in the color of our casting but you know i can't think of the actor who said no offense to ibsen and shaw and shakespeare um, you know, they deserve a place at the table, but the table's got to get bigger. Mm-hmm. I think that applies to everything involving the theater. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's all colors and all genders that we need, the table's got to get bigger for. Because I don't think that your race or your sexuality or your gender makes you a better composer, lyricist, performer, set designer, costume designer, whatever it may be. They have have, no effect on your artistic ability. And we all have stories to tell. All stories are relevant stories. Right. And so is it that... I mean, not all stories are relevant stories, but all perspectives of stories are important. Was the music better because Dolly Parton was a woman? Not necessarily, no. But were there certain lines or certain... I mean, Parts the of the show, show that were told differently because she's a woman? Absolutely, yes. That being said, I think that's what makes it important that, that there needs to be more women at the table. And I think that's a huge impact. 13 years ago that this show happened and existed and still continues to exist. Mm-hmm. And and we need to, that's something that needs to be talked about and connected to this. Not just what, you know, oh, the story about women signing up to a men to a man and to men in general because they're sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigots. But also, hey, on and off the stage, this show was doing that. 
Mm-hmm. Dolly had a big hand in putting the show on. She didn't just write music and lyrics and walk away. She was there every step of the way. She even made the announcement about the show coming to Broadway. She was in the first ad. She did everything with it to usher to Broadway and then some. I love that. Mm-hmm. And I hope that we see more of that. Mm-hmm. Because it's not a man's world on Broadway. It's an artist's world. And thank you for coming to my TED Talk. That's my two cents. Is this show relevant? Okay. So, when we ask this question, we're mainly talking about Broadway. Is the show relevant for Broadway? Is it relevant to go on Broadway right now today? I think the show is perfect for regional and college and touring productions, but is it right for Broadway? It's hard to say. It's a fun and recognizable show that audiences could find an escape in. I think it does better on the regional setting, is my thing. I think it's hard... I mean, look, Broadway, Broadway, as much as I want to be like, this is an artist haven. It's also a financial boondoggle. You still got to pack a thousand people, a show, you know, in a theater. And compete with how many other theaters at the same time. Which is fantastic to be saying now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that being said, I think it, it would be hard to do that with 9 to 5 with everything else that's playing or that's coming. Well, and especially if you think back to 2009, even then, it didn't have a very long run. It was like 100 and something shows, yeah. you know, that we mentioned earlier. Which is unfortunate because I think it should have gone longer. Oh, I completely agree, but I do think that that is why that this can, this show is more accessible to people living outside of a New York City. This well, is more, I, I think it's, it's just more attuned to a smaller theater, and that's why I was going to say something relatab- off-Broadway, it'd see more success. Well, I also think that it's more relatable to people across the country. Less of a city, more of a Midwestern thing is where exactly. you're going. Exactly, like, because we're um, not... I, I think that, you know, yes, this is taking place in a city, but it's got to be a city that has burbs close by. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of a place like Salt Lake City... Or, um, you Omaha, know. or Kansas City. Yeah, or, or you know. I can see that. I just think, like, right now, Little Shop of Horrors, it's getting a huge, huge rave run, you know, right now at the Tony Kaiser Theater. I can see Little Shop of Horrors, or excuse me, 9 to 5, doing something like that at, like, 150 or 200 seat theater here in New York. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, 10 out of 10 would agree. Mm-hmm. At a 1,500 seat theater like it played at the Marquee, that's mm-hmm. going to be hard eight shows a week, I think, in the current state. But that being said, it was new then. Now it's known what it is. I think similar with other shows that like like Shrek or something, now that people have had a chance to hear it or whatnot, oh, it's hard to say. A revival could really do some some good for it. So As promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we both saw the show in 2009. Mm-hmm. It was very impactful for me from top to bottom. I mean, just hearing all of these power ballads from women, seeing all of these amazing like amazing actresses who I had no idea who they were. Like Andrew's like, oh my god, Alice and Janney's in this. And I was like... I don't know what that means. Yeah, you've you know. never seen The West Wing, which you're almost through the series. It's getting almost. so good. 
So, okay. Full disclosure, Allison Janney is my favorite actress of all time. Allison Janney, if you hear this, you are my favorite actress of all time. 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 <laughs> Jet lag. No, um, of all time. And knowing that she was in the show, I immediately bought tickets to it. I could care less about what the show was about. or anything. I mean, I would watch Allison Janney read a phone book. That's fine for me. And the day before we went and saw the show, kids, just know that letter writing is a thing. I wrote a letter to her, and I was just like, I'm so excited. I've come all the way from Salt Lake City to see the show, and I want to congratulate you, blah, 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 blah. I'm looking forward to you doing the Kiss and Cry line. Um, thank you so much, blah, 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 blah. Dropped it off at the stage door. Go about my way. We go. We saw the matinee performance uh, that day. Ooh. Saw the show. Absolutely amazing. Go back to the stage door, and that's when the cast starts coming out. We met Megan Hilty, which again, you know, 13 years ago. Yay, Megan Hilty. Now that she's on, like, Smash and everything, it's like, oh, my God, Megan Hilty. Kathy Fitzgerald, which we already mentioned the whole, did I do something? Was I funny? You know, she was hilarious. And, of course, Stephanie J. Block, who's so sweet and kind. Like, God, Stephanie J. Block, if you ever hear this, you really are just such a sweetheart, and we can't say enough good about you. We've been raving about you for years. And, you know, we're waiting around, we're waiting around, and Allison Jenny never comes out. And I was like, oh, man, this is, this is a real bummer. And I finally asked the stage door manager, I said, excuse me, is Miss Janney coming out? Uh, we were really looking forward to meet her. And he goes, um, no, 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 I'm sorry. Miss um, Janney is, is, you know, she's, she's not feeling entirely up to it, and she's going to be taking a nap between shows. She won't be coming out. And I was like, oh, okay. I can respect that. Allison Janney works her butt off in the show. She's tap dancing and everything like that. And wearing heels. And <sighs> Allison Janney is amazing. Well, anyway, after he does that, he pops back in and he pops back out and he goes, is there an Andrew Cortez here? And I'm just like, hi, that's me. And he goes, oh, okay, just one moment. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what did I do? <laughs> I've did something horrible. Anyway. I know, at this point, I'm ready to like run down the street because I'm like, I can't handle this attention. If he's in trouble, goodbye. I know. I was like, I. This is where I die. This is where they're gonna be like, you are officially banned from the Broadway theater. Go away, please. No, but he comes out and he has a playbill and he hands it to me. He says, Miss Janney apologizes that she can't come out because she's not feeling well, but she wanted to thank you for the letter and hopes that you know this will make up for it. And hands me an autographed program. It says, to Andrew, love, Allison, Janney, thank you for everything. And it is framed. It is up at my place. And I was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know? And I mean, it, I would have loved to have actually met her and gotten a picture or something. But, look, actors are people, too. And they don't owe you anything other. Like, they no. don't owe you anything. They give you everything that you can Absolutely. expect from their performance. Um, and so anything they give you after their performance is just bonus. Yeah, and well, and if she needed a rest, God, please rest. Eat, drink, be married, do what you need to do to take care of you. Right, you've I just already, want a less show for you. Like, you've just, already given me so much and that I got to see you perform. That was incredible. The fact that she went the extra mile and signed a program for me, I was just like, this is why you're such a wonderful human being and I wish nothing but the best for you. But I was, I was just a gag, so... Um, that was incredible, and that I just remember everything about that show, and nothing can top in regards to, like, seeing a, another production of that show, nothing's going to beat it. It was fun. Mm -hmm. Just 
fun. Mm-hmm. As things begin to return to normal and the theater world continues to turn its lights back on, we look forward to returning to see the show again. You'll be able to catch 9 to 5, the musical, somewhere in the United States or maybe elsewhere. Who yeah, knows? Yeah, we've got Ho- listeners all around the world. Right. So. Hopefully somewhere this fall if you're a producer. Hey, do 9 to 5. Dolly Parton might be available. <laughs> <laughs> We'd also like to give a quick update on the reopening of Broadway. We'd like to welcome back the fabulous cast of Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations, now playing eight shows a week at the Imperial Theater. Hello, dearie. Euphigenia Doubtfire is making her Broadway debut at the Sondheim Theater. You can now see her eight times a week, dearies. And we're here to remind you the Jagged Little Pill is back at the Broadhurst Theater. Return to the majestic theater to hear the music of the night as the Phantom of the Opera returns to Broadway. Look, Broadway is coming back in full force and the lights have never been brighter. We'll be continuing to share special episodes covering our return to Broadway and help usher back the Great White Way. You'll be able to catch these Broadway bulletins being released every Tuesday and Saturday. So we're hoping that you're enjoying all this. We've been enjoying it. Just chilling out, looking out at the view right here at Midtown, seeing Broadway right over there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll be bringing you more shows. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies. And keep your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. like what you hear please leave a five-star review like and subscribe you can also find us on facebook instagram and twitter at stage whisper pod and feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stage at gmail.com our theme song is fox by music for wildlife other music on this episode provided by the joy drops the good louds benji menji and Billy Murray.